Welcome to the Jurisprudence, a podcast on jurisprudence. I'm Nikos Stavropoulos. And I am George Letzas. Hi, Nikos. Hi, George. So, what's the topic today? I thought we might talk about something closer to home, universities, uh-huh. and specifically the very topical issue of deplatforming. What is deplatforming? Deplatforming is when you rescind an invitation to a speaker or you obstruct their access to a platform on the basis of their ideas, views, or beliefs. Oh, I see. So, in order to be deplatformed, you have to be platformed in the first place. Right. In contrast to no platforming, so you oh, are I no see. platformed when there's a policy decision not to even invite someone because I of see. their ideas. Okay. Invite or disinvite to do what? The occasion here is a new bill in Parliament. The government is bringing legislation purportedly to protect free speech in campus. The rationale being that free speech is under threat from cancel culture. (laughs) I see. So uh, what does government propose to do about that? So there's a sweeping offence. They plan to make no platforming and deplatforming an offence and they give substantial powers to a regulator to monitor university practices and impose fines. The description of the offence is sweeping. It prohibits denial of use of university premises Mm -hmm. on account of someone's beliefs, ideas or views. Wait a minute. Who is the offender here? Is that you and me? It applies to academics. It applies to student unions. It applies to management. And with respect to any type of event that takes place in universities, Actually, the the legislation doesn't talk about platforms as such. It talks about university premises. I see. But of course, that includes, and that's what the main rationale is, it includes events where speakers are denied access. And does this also apply to my seminars? I think so, yes. Right. So if I never invite certain people to my seminars, that might be an offence? So you have in mind legal positivists? <laughs> Actually, I sometimes invite those people. <laughs> you sometimes invite. I think that's the absurdity of it, because at some level, of course, you make decisions about whom to invite based on their beliefs. When we host conferences mm-hmm. for our research, we go through extensive discussions about who has something new to say. So we, we are looking at people's research, mm-hmm. and we form a view about how good their, their views are. Mm-hmm. And then on that basis, we invite others. So I don't think that's what it's trying to prohibit. And of course, it applies to us from the other side, right? You and I are not invited to every conference on Earth. But what is this about? What is the political controversy that this is trying to... Right. So in this country, deplatforming in general happens when some contentious or controversial figure, usually from the far right... Mm-hmm is invited to speak, and usually these people don't even have a university affiliation. Mm -hmm. They're just very controversial. And when they're invited to speak at universities, the um, other side of the political spectrum is outraged. Mm -hmm. That has been the case for for quite some time in the US, where far-right figures were deplatformed by students who felt that their ideas are not only unacceptable, but actually dangerous. Mm-hmm. And this has now come to the UK. You can see if you have a right-wing government, they will have quite a significant motivation to try to strengthen, if you like, or amplify the views that sit more comfortably within that side of the political spectrum. There's that motivation, if you like. The government wants to counterbalance the predominantly lefty political speech in campus. Is that really what this is about? Is it about ensuring that 
certain voices are heard so that people might be persuaded? Or is it just political theater? Removing from the academic world the ability to ignore these people. Not in the hopes that if these people come and give a talk at the university, people will be persuaded, but just so that they actually come there. They are present. And therefore, a point is made. Right. It's not about the impact of their speech. It's about having a presence mm-hmm. and legitimizing those ideas. Now, in the U.S., it has been about right-wing figures. But over here, I don't think the right-wing figures have any problem being deplatformed. So you're right. Here, there's been another issue. I've attended events where the speakers, would, unbeknownst to me, had been at the receiving end of attempts to be deplatformed by the student union. Mm-hmm. So the student union in my university, before the, the event, had called and put pressure on the deplatforming of the speaker on the basis that the speaker supports the so-called gender-critical feminists. So this is the idea that transgender women do not count as women. This is a well-known view amongst uh, a particular strand of feminism. So uh, students, a lot of students, feel very passionately about the rights of trans people, and they take these views to be unacceptable and also to to actually endanger the rights of trans people. So I've, I've often been in events where the speaker has to say something about this because they, they know there was an attempt to deplatform them. And they usually invoke academic freedom, which is interesting, and freedom of speech. And these are people who normally are considered to be on the left side of the political spectrum, so progressives. Mm-hmm. And in this country, weirdly, a big part of the progressive left has actually seen this new legislation favorably. I see. And was anyone really effectively deplatformed at UCL? I haven't witnessed this, but it, it's happening and many gender-critical feminists think that their day-to-day job has changed, that they are being denied the right to speak and express their views. There's uh, petitions and collection of signatures Mm -hmm. to support those academics, mainly against student protests, because I'm not aware of cases where management has intervened. But do these people have a right to speak in the first place? Do I have a right to speak at UCL? I didn't know I did. Well, that's the thing. Before we know whether this is a violation of free speech, we have to ask who owns university platforms and who can exercise control over it. It seems to me that when the government makes deplatforming an offense, mm-hmm. it asserts ownership of the platforms. And that, to me, seems particularly problematic. So we need to ask first, to whom do those platforms belong? Let me just use an analogy here. Clearly, I have the right to decide who to invite in my dinner party, Mm -hmm. which also includes the right to rescind an invitation if I change my mind. Mm -hmm. I I might change my mind for all kinds of wrong reasons, but it's still my right to rescind it. Mm -hmm. So by analogy, we might say that university platforms are owned by the academics of the university to which they belong and the broader academic community. And what's happening here is the government is trying to appropriate this right by telling academics when not to receive an invitation. So it seems to me that we have two very different ideas here. One is academic freedom, which relates to the academic functions of the university, and there the right holder is you and I and the students, and free speech, which is a totally different idea Mm -hmm. and must be distinguished. Can you explain how? Going back to my example, it would be weird if I receive an invitation to a friend for a dinner party if the friend were to tell me you violate my free speech. And let's assume that I rescinded the invitation because that friend has controversial ideas and he's gonna, he or she are gonna ruin my party. Mm-hmm. So you, you might say free speech 
isn't applicable there. And by analogy, if the point of academic freedom is some kind of independence from government in the pursuit of knowledge, then it's, it's up to us, academics and students, to decide how to use those platforms. You cannot respect a right to extend invitations, as we do as part of our job, without respecting the right to rescind them. So the complaint that is based on free speech, is that is there any merit under any circumstances to such a complaint? Clearly, if you look at um, the moment where a speaker has taken the floor and students are booing them or heckling them, not allowing the speaker to be heard, mm-hmm. this seems like a paradigm case of censorship, if you like. So I think at, at some first appearance, free speech seems to be at stake here. Someone has been invited to speak and then students are obstructing and preventing that speaker from being heard. But we have to remember, protesting is a form of speech too. Mm -hmm. And that's not just me saying it, it's a good case law here from the European Court of Human Rights. Look at the salience protesting has for democracy. One way in which citizens can express political dissatisfaction with government, Protests are often disruptive. Think about students' protests in a different context during dictatorships or during apartheid. This kind of protest by students, particularly disruptive protests, has been pivotal in the fight against injustice. So what's happening here is the need for some kind of recognition that students have this right. Now, the government, by making deplatforming an offense, wipes out the right of students to protest because any disruptive protest of an event is going to count as an offence. And it's not the case that every disruption is a violation of someone's rights. So if the disruption is, say, amounts to harassment or any type of violent behaviour, of course, nobody has a right to be violent or harass others. But if it's simply heckling or preventing from speaking, we have to allow the stakeholders, the academics and the students, to resolve this. So it's not ideal, but the alternative is for the government to step in and tell the students, I'm sorry, your protest is not valuable here, you're going to have to listen to the speaker. But who are you to decide that? Like, who is the government to intervene within the community and shut down one side? What if the government says, look, there has to be balance, therefore... For every lefty that you invite, you also have to invite a right-wing figure so that the audience is exposed to both sides. What's wrong with that argument? My sense is that there, the government is assuming control of the public ecology of the university. Let's accept the most powerful political speech in campus would be center-center-left. That is the case not by fiat. It's not because the management or the government chose these political views to be nominant, it's bottom-up. Most stakeholders tend to have views on the progressive side of the spectrum. And this is not by design, right? This is from each one of us within the university exercising their, their speech, the right to speak and to have a view. Now, when government intervenes effectively, tries to alter the public ecology by amplifying one side of the political spectrum. When you say public ecology, you mean something like the culture, the public culture? Yeah. So, suppose someone says, look, yeah, that's right, as it happens, left liberal views dominate university campuses, and that's a problem. And it's a problem because you and I indoctrinate those students. We lead them to believe that these are the views to have, and these students have never been exposed to an opposing, anti-liberal, for example, view, right? And now government comes in to right this wrong, to make sure that the other side is heard too, and therefore 
has a fair chance of shaping the opinion of the next generation. Would we accept the same argument for politics in general? Suppose elections are dominated by left liberal speech. Could the government step in and amplify the other side? Well, there is this practice in some places where pre-election TV time is fairly allocated between the parties that contest the election on some conception of what a fair allocation is. Why not do the same with universities? For me, there's a clear reason why. So you get the example of TV. So there you have a scarce public good, mm-hmm. which is the airwaves uh, or the, the TV channels. Mm-hmm. And it's the scarcity there that is the issue. There is no scarcity in academic platforms. Anybody, any academic now can broadcast their views through publishing, or blogging, tweeting, Facebook, social media. Mm-hmm. There's infinite number of platforms mm-hmm through which you can address the public. So it's not as if we have to make allocation of a scarce public good. The issue with the university platform is not that they are scarce, is that they are usually credible and they're run by experts. And that's what people want. They want to write to a good platform. All those people who are de-platform or no platform, their views are well known. That's why they are being built platform. Everybody knows what they, what they want to say, right? So it's not really about being deprived of an opportunity to address the public. Mm-hmm. If anything, they become even more popular. So what people are looking for here is the imprimatur of a university setting in which to develop those views. I would love to have a right to a good platform. I would love it if Jimmy Fallon invited me to The Tonight Show. Right. But I don't think that not being invited silences me. Can we go back to academic freedom? What is that about and why do we have it? Historically, it seems to me that it's always been the case that academic freedom had a, a negative dimension, which is that it protected the pursuit of knowledge against the government. Historically, in the Middle Ages, there was an orthodoxy, particularly before the Enlightenment. Science was not divorced from religion. Some scientific views were considered blasphemous. Mm-hmm. So the idea of, of giving universities freedom primarily was the idea of protecting them against intervention on the content of the research by the government. So the primary point of academic freedom is independence from government in the pursuit of truth. It seems to me that there is a relevant distinction here between the following two phenomena. One, your regular seminars during term time where you might teach alone, you might teach together with a colleague, or you might invite external speakers to present a paper, for instance. Okay, that's one side. The other thing is a kind of public event that takes place at a university, but is not part of the university's regular teaching. It is, if you wish, itself a contribution to the cultural world. Students sometimes are the hosts. Other times it can be a bunch of academics, or it can be some kind of university unit at a different level, a department, for instance, or a college here in Oxford. And they will deliberately invite a controversial speaker precisely in order to join the fray take a side in the cultural war. Don't you think that this distinction is pretty relevant? You think that this distinction means that those outward-facing events are not covered by the value of academic freedom? Well, maybe not. They're not in the core of academic freedom because they are not the regular teaching designed to pursue knowledge. And therefore they don't get any protection? Well, I'm not sure whether or not they get no protection, but maybe it's more attenuated. I'm not sure. What do you think? One crucial difference I see is between public events where the audience is the broader public and there, when there's a protest at least, the speaker is not allowed to speak, that doesn't interfere with the host's 
academic freedom because we're not there to do research. So if someone were to bust my closed conference where I have invited colleagues from around the world to speak about legal theory and then someone interferes with that, that would undermine academic freedom because we are pursuing knowledge. That's not the government, that's not the government, but it's nevertheless an interference with the pursuit of knowledge. That's very different to the what you describe, where we're not there to do work, if you like, to do research. We're there to take part in the public debate. So there, I don't see academic freedom even being implicated. Mm-hmm. Now, d- does the government have the, the standing? Any business, yeah. Any business? I, I, would, I would think not, not even there, because as I said, the students continue to be right holders within the academic community, and that includes the right to protest. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's unfortunate when any speaker gets shut down, but the alternative, what the government is proposing is worse. The government effectively is proposing that under no circumstances is it legitimate for students to disrupt an event. Mm-hmm. We should, of course, stress that the argument we're making here doesn't really apply to cases where your own students interfere with your day-to-day task as an academic. So, for example, during your lecture or your seminars, they disrupt the class or they come to your office outside your office and protest, these cross the boundaries of permissible protests because they do often amount to harassments. A lot of the colleagues with views that people find controversial have been at the receiving end of this type of protest. And the idea there is that one central element of harassment is repeated behavior that causes distress. Mm-hmm. So I think as an employee, I am protected against this type of harassment. Criminal law prohibits this. And you don't need new legislation for that. So if people are worried, as they should be, about academics not being able to do their job, the answer is clear. Universities have a duty under law to protect academics against harassment. You don't need prohibition of deplatforming. Right, right. And I think that's a mistake. There's been a colleague in the UK who's now left UK academia, Kathleen Stock, mm-hmm. who has been at the receiving end of numerous protests and attempts at being deplatformed. And a lot of the behavior I understand is of this nature. It happened at her own university by students there. And I I think it's a mistake to think of those type of behavior as a problem under free speech. This is clearly crossing the boundaries of criminal law. It's harassment, it's intimidation. We should condemn all all of this, but we don't need new legislation. I think a lot of our colleagues have looked at the legislation favorably because they have this kind of incidents in mind. Mm-hmm. And clearly, we should be worried, Nicole. Like, if you cannot teach your seminar, mm-hmm. if there are students outside your office every single day. What if the university has got word that in my seminar I express views on some very delicate, sensitive topics? And for example, many students, let's suppose, have complained. Would the university be within their rights to keep an eye on my teaching, to ask me to clear in advance with them the topics and readings, and otherwise to try and protect? the students who are complaining from my offending views, let's imagine. You just described the real threat to academic freedom. So the real threat comes from university management, whereby, particularly in a climate of consumerism, where students might complain about anything, and then the management has market-based incentives to please the students. In this country, there's a survey every year where they ask students how happy they are with a degree, and this feeds into the rankings. So now you have a set of perverse incentives whereby university acquires an incentive to monitor our courses, monitor the content of our courses. Mm-hmm. Now, I cannot think of a more blatant violation of academic criminal than that. Mm-hmm. 
So instead of focusing on the real threat to academic freedom, we're focusing on the issue of deplatforming, which is not really a threat to academic freedom. Is the government seriously moving ahead with that legislation? Is it going to set up this regulator? I fear the worst. If a regulator is set up, I fear that university management won't be able to resist their intervention. I don't know. And I, I don't know whether it will actually go through. There was, even within the, um, the ranks of the government, concern and opposition. As we said, uh, the offense is sweeping. It's overly broad. So it seems as if it makes it an offense not to invite someone because they are a Holocaust denier. Tom Nagel, um, many years ago, made a point specific to Holocaust denial. I think he said that it offends him, and it should offend all of us, that we might need protection from such views. And the other point that he makes is that it's essential that people form their views about such topics based on reasons, not based on dogma. It's a view, of course, which is not very popular in Europe. As you know, in Europe, certain forms of speech are considered hate speech and banned. And the European Court of Human Rights, I think, is happy with that, right? Well, not only happy, <laughs> the European Court has said that uh, Very excited. <laughs> well, it's interesting how absolutism is now on the other side of the free speech wars. Liberals used to be absolutely against any form of restriction based on content. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of the progressive left endorses the, the view of the European Court, which is this. When the complaint legislation is hate speech laws that ban the denial of Holocaust, the European Court will not even examine the case. Mm-hmm. because they think that some forms of hate speech, such as denying the Holocaust, are so incompatible with democracy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that they receive no protection whatsoever under the Convention. So there's an article in the Convention, Article 17, which prohibits the abuse of rights. Right, I see. So, so someone who wants to defend the right to deny the Holocaust, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that person is abusing the right under the Convention, right. and therefore the court will not even examine whether this was a violation. Mm-hmm. Now, in the old days, the conservatives used to be on the other side, not on the side of arguing for freedom of speech, but on the side of arguing against it. But now it's often said that conservatives and liberals have switched sides. And now, as you say, the left liberals especially are very happy to uh, restrict freedom of speech, whereas conservatives present their views as defense of freedom of speech. Is that right? Is this really how the territory is divided? Well, you just remind me of Isaiah Berlin's worry mm-hmm. about the idea of positive liberty. So Berlin warned mm-hmm. that the enemies of liberalism will not come waving their liberal credentials. They will advocate restrictions on liberty and free speech in the name of liberty itself. Right. So now what's happening is the conservative right doesn't, at least openly, claim that you need control over public culture in order to promote some ideology, as they, they always did. They are saying they want control over public culture to protect free speech. Right, right, right. That's how it's packaged, right? So who owns culture? This, I guess, is the fundamental question here. This is the culture wars, and the government wants to intervene in the culture wars to make sure that one side to those wars improve its influence. At some level, the very phenomenon of cancel culture is the result of a bottom-up process of everyone expressing views about what they find acceptable. And the end result of that, the product, the output, 
is something that some governments don't like. They call it cancel culture and <laughs> try to intervene and shift it. Right. But how about the, the basic question? Who owns culture? Everyone and nobody, right? Why cannot the government say, well, we won the election, therefore it's only fair that it should be able to intervene in the cultural wars and try to boost one side? Well, here, the, the point by Nagel you mentioned is crucial, that it offends every citizen when the government meddles with the channels of communication. It's as if the government is telling us, you're not to be trusted for to process own, for your own... own. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Everybody is offended when this happens. Right, not only those who are... Censored. Right. Why aren't universities a public resource in the same way that the airways are a public resource? They're both scarce, and therefore, why is it not the case that government gets to uh, regulate the distribution of that resource? I see. So I mentioned earlier that universities are good platforms because they're run by experts, and any academic can simply publicize their views in other ways. They don't need the university platform to make their views known to the public. Now, you're asking something different, I think. You're asking, insofar as universities perform a function, which is to do research and teach, they are finite resources. Sure. There are a limited number of them, and students, while they are studying, form opinions and are influenced yeah. by the... Right. The in, the, in the same way that people who watch a party political broadcast in advance of an election are forming an opinion. Sure, but it's part of the point of TV and the media and the internet to allow the expression of views about any aspect of public culture. Mm -hmm. Art, politics, philosophy, culture, religion. That's not the case with universities. The primary point of universities is not to communicate views about the world. Mm -hmm. It's to do research, pursue truth, and teach students. Mm -hmm. It's incidental that while you're at the university, you might form opinion about other things, but it's not the primary function of universities. Mm -hmm. And as we said, in the pursuit of truth, that's where you want the independence from government. All right. My sense, Nico, is that the government has set up a very clever trap with this bill. They label the bill the higher education slash free speech bill. Right. And they present making deplatforming an offense as a free speech matter. In reality, what the bill is doing is seeking to control speech within universities at the expense of protest, at the expense of my and yours academic freedom to disinvite someone mm -hmm. if we change our mind or if we think that their views are actually not very good ones to, to hear. And instead of promoting freedom of speech, what the government is doing is taking away our academic freedom. It strikes at the core of academic freedom because it's an intervention seeking to control who gets to speak. Right. The, and the problem is government has no standing mm -hmm. <laughs> to make decisions about who gets to speak. It's, it's the community. It's you and, and me and academics and students. I'm anxious to add just one point. It's not as if the government's uh, proposed bill does protect freedom of speech except it does so at the expense of academic freedom. It does not protect freedom of speech in the first place, because any attempt by government to control speech cannot be a protection of freedom of speech. It's by the definition. opposite. Exactly. It's now time to turn to the Who Said That section of the podcast. Last week, I gave Nikos the following quote 
Every act of interpretation is an act of independent creative synthesis of a legislator. The legislator is constructed, not reconstructed. End of quote. Nikos's guess was that this was either a bad anti-positivist or a type of realist. Nico, now I'm going to really surprise you and say that this quote is actually from Carl Schmidt. I see. This is very recent stuff in English. So our colleague from Cambridge, Lars Vinks, uh-huh. is working on an English edition of the work of the early Carl Schmidt on the issue of legal determinacy. And I learned from Lars that the early Schmidt is actually kind of a Durkinian (laughs) because he was, on one hand, trying to oppose the idea that the will of the legislator always fixes the outcome, determines the result for the judge to reach. Mm -hmm. And he thought that view is wrong. But on the other hand, he didn't want to subscribe to the position that the construction of the will of the legislator is a free invitation to make it up. Any meaning you want. Exactly. Exactly. Just make it up. So he was trying to find. Operation. Exactly, exactly. It's a kind of anti formalism, right? Correct. So, what are the principles of construction? Huh? You said this is early Schmidt. Does this mean that he was not yet a Nazi? Or does it mean that he's already a Nazi, he just didn't know yet? Well, I don't know enough. I don't know. We'll have to ask Lars for this. I don't know enough. I I think you could interpret it either way. I I haven't read the whole book. I've only read that chapter. It's possible that he changed his mind about this when his political yeah, and politics got the better of him. Or, or, or I suppose he could just say that the principles of construction are the values of the nation or the land or something like that. That, I think, was what the the other extreme at the time advocated, the free law movement. Mm-hmm. And I understand Schmidt was against that too. He was trying to find a middle position mm-hmm. between mm-hmm. that kind of realism, if you like, and formalism. Mm-hmm. And that was the point about the legislature being constructed. But yeah, Nico, good effort, good try. Oh, yeah. Thank but, you. Uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wish I knew more about Schmidt and more about about the jurisprudence in Germany before the war. I have a very vague sense of what it consists in, so I'd be excited to learn more about it. That was great fun. Thanks, George. Okay, Nico, so now it's your turn to choose a quote. Are you ready? Fire away. The idea that there is no limit to the powers of the legislator is in part the result of popular sovereignty and democratic government. It has been strengthened by the belief that so long as all actions of the state are duly authorized by legislation, the rule of law shall be preserved. This is completely to misconceive the meaning of the rule of law. This rule has little to do with the question whether the actions of government are legal in the juridical sense. They may well be, and yet not conform to the rule of law. What do you think? Wow, difficult. So it seems like an anti-proceduralist view. So the rule of law is not to do with whether legislation has been duly enacted under some procedure known in advance, but it's to do something else. It reminds me of a distinction which is very popular amongst public lawyers between procedural and substantive accounts of the rule of law. But actually, this doesn't really seem quite fall within that dichotomy because... This one goes deeper. It goes deeper. It says it's not about procedures at all, right? To think of the rule of law uh, is to misconceive the meaning of the rule of law. One of the leading figures in the substantive side of the divide is meant to be Fuller. It doesn't sound like Fuller at all. That's right. So 
this author is not simply saying that there is a further aspect to the rule of law. He's not calling attention to one of two aspects of the rule of law, the substantive one as opposed to the procedural one. That's not at all what he's saying. He's saying that the understanding of the rule of law on which if the government acts in line with some duly enacted statute, then it thereby respects the rule of law, is to misconceive completely the rule of law. That's not what the rule of law is. It is something else, something else that remains to be explained. Right, and people like Fuller, of course, would have like a checklist theory, which would include the procedural aspects. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So that doesn't sound at all like Fuller. Also, it doesn't sound at all Anglo-American. I'm struck by the use of the adjective juridical sense. (laughs) That's right. So that sounds to me very European. Germanic. Germanic. But I can't think of who this might be. Uh, I'm lost, Nikov. So let's leave this until the next episode. Great. I'm George Letzas. And I'm Nikos Avropoulos. And this was The Jewish Prudes, a podcast in legal philosophy.